Good evening. Yet another party is being investigated. That's party or alleged party number 12 that took place during lockdown, either in or around number 10 or Conservative Central Office. But this one is different to the others. This one, I don't think, can be explained away. You see, it's all very, very clear, because an email went out from Martin Reynolds, the private secretary to the Prime Minister, saying they should all take advantage of the lovely weather. Well, of course, that first lockdown, the weather was amazing. It was the 20th of May. A hundred people were invited. They were told it would be socially distanced, but they were urged to bring your own booze. Now, I think if you're asked to bring your own booze, you pretty much know the kind of event that you are going to go to. But it goes deeper than that, because there are several witnesses that say that Mr and Mrs Johnson were there present at that party. When questioned today, Boris Johnson did what he always does, gives that sort of schoolboy smirk as if he's been caught stealing a biscuit, and says, it's all under investigation. What, you mean you can't tell us whether there's a party in your own house and you were part of it? I think they're in real trouble on this one. Genuinely, I do. There are some that say to me, Nigel, it makes no difference. Everyone knows he's a serial liar. It doesn't really matter. But I think it does actually matter. So the question tonight I wanted to debate with you is, is it too late for Boris Johnson to say sorry? GBviews at gbnews.uk. Is it too late to say sorry? You see, my impression with the first parties was, if they'd said, do you know what, we'd worked blooming hard, we did break the rules and we're sorry... I think the majority of us would say, do you know what, we broke the rules too, actually. We perhaps met with more than one person outside, because remember, on May the 20th, that day that 100 people were invited into Downing Street, that was the very same day we were being told by senior government ministers that you could meet only one other person outside and socially distanced. It smacks of arrogance. It smacks of do as I say, not as I do. And the pressure is really mounting on this Prime Minister. I spoke today to somebody who's been a long-time backer and financial supporter of the Prime Minister. He's done with them. Uh, we've seen John Caldwell tonight, uh, you know, big, successful mobile phone man, saying, Boris, sort it or go. And certainly some of the MPs I've spoken to are pretty mutinous. Now, he's got to do something to try and turn this round. Is an apology? Is a hands up? Yes, Gov, we did it. We behaved terribly. Would it help or is it just too late? I think my own feeling is that he'll still be there on the first Thursday of May because that's when the local elections will take place in many parts of England. And if those results are anything like as bad as the polls currently suggest, then I can't see him lasting the summer. Well, joining me to discuss all of this is Sean Worth, a former Downing Street advisor in the days of David Cameron. Sean, welcome. Thanks Hello, for coming Nigel. in. I mean, crises in government, that's hardly anything very new about that. But this, you know, and they sort of laughed off, didn't they, the 17 of them sitting in the garden and said it was they were talking about work. And maybe there were. Mm. Maybe they were. You know, maybe they were. But when you get an email that says, bring your own booze, <laughs> I mean, that's a slam dunk, isn't it? It, it looks really bad. And I think, I think what you hit the nail on the head, actually, a, a little bit what you said there was there was no explanation offered. I think this is the thing killing the Prime Minister at the moment. Mm. The thing really annoying um, backbench MPs in particular 
Uh, I, I don't think there'll be a, a serious leadership challenge, you know, as is being floated and you kind of implied. But mm. what they're really annoyed about, and I've spoken to two MPs about it today, is that, that not, not necessarily that the event took place, but there's no explanation. Other, you know, you could come out and you said, like, version of what you said, you could say, yeah. look, it's like a submarine in Downing Street. It's, you know, it, it, we're dealing Pressure with national cooker. security. Yeah. yeah, we can't work at home because of security. And I, I know this because you, you can't do working from home remotely and stuff because of a threat of hacking and all of that. We have to be there. We're dealing with national security, all the rest of it, and this pandemic. Uh, somebody tried to take a bit of a break, take the pressure off. Bad choice of words in the email, obviously. We're so sorry about that. Here's a process we're going to put in place to make sure it doesn't happen again. The problem for the Prime Minister is that he's not done any of that. Nothing. It, and and the, the, the big thing, sort of communications 101 in politics, and this is what I'm really surprised about, is that if you don't offer something, your critics and opponents, well, they'll fill the void for you and they'll chuck it full of, uh, you know, all sorts of explanations and charges and all that, none of which you can respond to if you hold the current position that the Prime Minister's holding. So I think that's the... Uh, you know, real thing that's, that's getting the goat of MPs at the moment, just the handling of it. Would an apology suffice? Would it help? It, it, massively. I think if you just had a reasonable explanation... But you've got to say you, sorry too. You've got to say... So, well, I, I think it's two things, right? You've, you've, first of all, you've got to have a, an explanation. Somebody's got to take responsibility. And it looks like they've got this official... Martin Reynolds, yeah. Yes, exactly. They've got this official that sent the email, yeah. slightly hanging him out to dry. I don't know if you know, they're going to end up firing him and giving him... You know, he'll pop up two years later as the governor <laughs> of Bermuda or something. Uh, you know, but the, which, which again angers people. It, it does, yeah, it does. And, the, you know, that sort of thing can happen, and maybe that, that might happen. But uh, the, as, as I think you've been saying, actually, uh, the buck stops with PM, mm. and he's got to come out and say, look, sorry for this. I know it looks bad. Here's the explanation. There's a process here that makes sure... But when you say again. that, hang on, Sean, an explanation. We saw in the Downing Street Garden an explanation for the Barnard Castle visit from mm. Dominic Cummings. It would have been so much better for Cummings... If he'd said, Do you know what, it was my birthday, <laughs> it was Easter Sunday, the weather was beautiful, I know we shouldn't have done what we did, but we did it. Mm. And I wonder how many of you watching this right now did the same. Mm. People would have said, oh, yeah, actually, mm. he's got half. I mean, I just felt the Barnard Castle explanation was a catastrophe. And I just, Sean, I just think his only way out of it is, is to really fess up. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you and I have just said, here's a plausible explanation yeah. that they might use, and that's literally off the top of our heads. And I'm sure clever people in Downing Street, given three hours, can come up with... <laughs> maybe not, I mean, but sure, yeah, you'd hope that they could come up with some plausible explanation just to, just to give people the assurance that... Well, they need something, it, because this is really impacting. I mean, snap poll today by Savanta Comres, and, yeah, you know, it's emotional and short-term mm. and whatever, but of all adults, 66% against 24%. Two-thirds of those asked think he should resign. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every, literally, every, I, I arrived here slightly early, went, there's a bar across the street from where you are, and I had a quick drink in there. Everyone in the bar is talking about it. Yes. It, it's literally everybody's talking about it because I think the Prime Minister hasn't come out and given an explanation. So the, the void is being filled with all sorts of speculation and, all, you know, who knows what the hell was... Was he there? Was his wife there? Was the baby there? All these questions. Yeah. You can answer those questions later... But the communications 101 handling exercise here is give a reasonably detailed explanation and answer detailed stuff later after the investigation. Now, there is, a, there is an official inquiry after the first inquiry host had to stand down because his department too had held mm. the party. There is an investigation going on, but aren't these things generally whitewashes? 
Well, the Sue Gray, who's who's yeah. been uh, this is the lady that's been uh, yeah. I think she's been brought out of retirement actually to come and um, uh, conduct the investigation, and and she is she was a former. Uh, she, when I was in Downing Street, she was called the head of propriety and ethics. So she was the person that would uh, police uh, people's behaviour and stuff. But obviously she's part of the establishment. And I, I can't see her chucking the sitting prime minister on the bus for what is essentially, I think, you know, a workplace gathering, socially distanced, as responsible as they could try and make it, but very ill-judged. And a, a, at least a very terrible email being sent round, which, mm. which has now got out. So it's like a Lord Guite job, but, really, over the wallpaper. That, it could yeah, be, yes, yeah, they I, did wrong, but, you know, it's yeah, OK. I, I mean, I don't want to be a concern conspiracy theorist, but I imagine you know, she's in line for some sort of honours later. No, on. what a thing to say. That, that is dreadful. I'm very surprised. <laughs> I'm very surprised that we get someone like Sean Worth, a former Downing Street advisor, coming on this programme and making any such suggestion. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Coming up in a minute, I speak to a nurse who for 25 years has worked in a dedicated way within the National Health Service. She's now facing the sack as she doesn't want to have the vaccine. We'll find out why in just a moment. As Partygate gets worse, I'm asking you the question, is it too late for Boris Johnson to hold his hands up and apologise? Vinoda on Twitter says, if he's honest, people will respect him more and he'll turn things around. I think it's his only way out, personally. Colin says, far too late, get him out. Alan says, no, he knows how hopeless Labour are. Weak government always goes hand in hand with weak opposition. Hmm, not sure about that. Graham says, Boris Johnson knows it's the final curtain for him. How can they refute all the evidence already submitted? Embarrassing for us Conservatives, but it's the only way forward now. And somebody on Twitter says to me, yes, it's too late. And all he and the Conservative Party are doing now is showing utter contempt for the electorate. And finally, Mark says, people who defend this have zero morals. The anger is building. And I thought what Sean Worth said was very interesting. There is a complete vacuum out there. They're offering no explanations whatsoever. They're hiding behind an inquiry. And the British public are pretty rapidly saying that that simply isn't good enough. Now, onto an issue that is very real. It started with the care sector where people who worked in the care sector were told unless they had the double vaccination, they would lose their jobs. Now, we don't know, finally, how many people have left the care sector because of it. Some estimates are that it's over 30,000 people. We'll have a little think for now about the National Health Service, because a deadline has been set by the 3rd of February. NHS staff, regardless whether they're in frontline medical care or working in an office, have by the 3rd of February to have had their first jab, or on the 1st of April, they will be out. Now, bear in mind, the NHS is 100,000 staff short, 40,000 nurses short. And a campaign has sprung up over the course of the last week, and they're calling themselves the NHS 100,000. That's the estimated number of people within the NHS that have not had the vaccine. I'm told the figure could be slightly lower now. It could be 85,000. But still, there are people out there who, whatever the threats to their jobs, appear not to want to have this vaccine and are facing losing their jobs. Well, joining me to discuss all of this is Karen Moore, a registered nurse with more than 25 years of experience working in the NHS <laughs> and regularly. And you regularly give immunizations, I understand, but you're not keen 
to have the vaccine yourself. Good evening. That's correct. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, I do give vaccines. I've never given the COVID one. Um, ah. I'm not prepared to give something that I won't have myself. But I do give childhood vaccines, travel vaccines and the traditional vaccines, if you like. Right. Um, so you're not. So we can't put you. We can't put you, Karen, in the anti-vaxxer camp as such then. No, absolutely not. I spent this morning in a baby clinic giving vaccinations to, to babies and young children. So, no, certainly not. Um, I've, I'm not anti-vax. What I am is I truly believe in freedom of choice. I have, you know, I've had parents who decline their vaccinations for their, their children. That's their choice. We may not always agree with it. But if the mandate goes through, it isn't really... My my concern isn't so much that no, I don't want this jab. I I I'm not at a high risk of COVID. Um, I'm actually covering in other surgeries for staff that are triple jabbed that are off with the um, virus, and they're calling me in to cover those shifts. So how does it make sense for me to have a vaccine for something that I'm at very low risk of for a vaccine that doesn't? prevents the disease, doesn't stop the spread. But because of that, I'm at risk of losing my job in April. But I can work the up until then. The government would say, Karen, the government or some of the hawks in the government would say that by <laughs> not having the vaccine, you are posing a risk to patients. How would you answer that charge? If I'm posing a risk to patients, why am I still working? Why haven't they told me to redeploy me so that I'm not face to face? Well, they're giving you a well. They're giving you they're giving you a deadline, aren't they? They're giving you a deadline. But do you? I they mean, look, are. If somebody has I, had, if if a nurse has had the vaccine, next to somebody who's not had the vaccine, are the government mm -hmm. right in implying that the person that has not had the vaccine is posing a greater risk to patients? In my experience, no, because I'm actually covering for staff that have now had their boosters. So they've had three vaccines and they're off quite unwell with COVID in certain surgeries I'm working in. I've worked all through the pandemic from the very beginning. I wear my PPE. I hate wearing my PPE. I wear it. I do all of the infection and prevention control that I've been taught from years down the line. As far as I'm aware, I've never put a, a patient at risk and I would not do my job if I thought I was at risk to a patient. So, but suddenly, they've, in my opinion, they've trialled this in the care sector, they've got away with it, and now they're doing it for the NHS. This will not stop with the NHS. This will go to public services. This will go to potentially patients not being able to receive treatment. Patients already can't receive treatment. Some are denied treatment if they won't have a PCR. So where does this end? And I feel okay, so, so this passionately. Is, this is about never... more than your job then. This is your stance Absolutely. against government making these decisions for us, yeah? It is. I mean, Savage Javid spoke to Dr James when he was saying he wasn't prepared to have the vaccine. He said there's always debate. When has this government ever debated this? They haven't. There are alternative treatments to COVID, never debated. Everybody's class is a conspiracy theorist. They've never debated. To, to me, be clear, something is I mean, to be absolutely clear, Karen, to be absolutely clear, you are prepared after a quarter of a century of being a nurse, mm -hmm. you are prepared to lose your job on the 1st of April. I am. And the reason I'm doing that is 
because I have grandchildren. And if I don't stand against this mandate now, what future do they have? If we do not stand, bear in mind, NHS staff, when have you ever seen NHS staff go on strike? They don't strike, nurses don't strike. Paramedics, nurses, doctors are prepared to walk away from the jobs they love, to walk away from, I can't do anything else. I don't, I, I can't see that I'm qualified for anything else, but I cannot, I cannot be coerced into this when there are alternatives. Um, it just doesn't make sense to me. It just doesn't make sense. No, well, I so, believe that you're absolutely sincere <laughs> in what you say. I'm certain you're not going to get the jab and I'm pretty certain you're going to lose your job. But thank you for coming on and explaining your reasons. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that was Karen Moore, nurse based in Somerset, and she's going to lose her job. I don't know how many people uh, will leave the NHS as a result of this, uh, whether it's going to be 20,000 or 80,000. I've no idea how many it's going to be, but it's going to be a disaster. And surely... Surely, folks, if we're lateral testing on a regular basis, surely that's a better way forward. At least I would have thought so. Now, my What the Farage moment today, it concerns big corporate companies. I don't know what it is, whether it's big commercial companies, whether it's charities, but the bigger they get and they seem to sort of employ PR agencies or young postgraduates into their PR departments uh, that often put out messages that sound utterly and completely ridiculous. Well, here's one that fits that bill. Ovo Energy, one of the biggest energy providers in the country, and they're talking, but they're the second largest supplier in the country, and they're talking to their customers about the worry that bills are going to go up from 1,200 quid to nearly 2,000 quid. But they offered some advice to people as to how they should deal with this, which included... I'm not making this up. Cuddling pets for warmth. Challenging kids to a hula hoop competition. Keeping the oven open after you've finished cooking. Um, I, I mean, the whole thing is just absolutely extraordinary. Now, unsurprisingly, uh, they've been slammed um, and various members of Parliament have said this is utterly ridiculous. And now Ovo Energy have sent out another statement saying... It was embarrassingly unhelpful and poorly judged. We are sincerely sorry. What is it that gets in to these corporate companies? Why don't they have better employment policies? I just don't know. Now, Pope Francis, and I'm not a Catholic. I'm still an Anglican. But I have met Pope Francis. And I know some of the hardliners in the Catholic Church don't like him, but I found him to be very personable. Indeed. And I was really thrilled before Christmas when he ticked off the European Commission for saying happy holidays. No, Pope Francis said, it is happy Christmas. That is what you should be saying. Well, he's gone a fair bit further than this now because he's criticised cancel culture. He even used that phrase in English and he claimed it suffocates freedom of expression, rewrites the past and eliminates all sense of identity. And this is really pretty strong stuff from the Pope. What interests me is we don't seem to hear anything like that from the Archbishop of Canterbury, Gavin Welby. I just don't know why. What is going on within our churches? Well, I'm very pleased to say that joining me 
is Dr Gavin Ashenden, former chaplain to the Queen. And, of course, now, very much on the other side, a Catholic commentator now. Yes, Nigel. Well, one of the reasons I became a Catholic was because when I saw this huge cultural crisis, which is affecting our society and risking taking away freedom of speech, democracy and personal autonomy, it seemed to me that the Catholic Church was the one organization that had the power and the coherence to take it on. And I think what the Pope has said to the diplomats against cancel culture is one of the most important things he said since he became Pope. And I'm absolutely delighted that he said it. And I hope what he does is to set this ball running and, and Christians all over the world, the nearly two billion Catholics will, will join him in this, uh, in, in taking cancel culture on. Well, it's certainly an act of, it's certainly an act of leadership. And he was very, very unequivocal and very clear in what he said. We, we saw a report this week, Gavin, that about 400 C of E churches are due to close. And I know that you've left the Anglican Church, but I'm sure you still wish it well. Um, why? Why are we not seeing the Archbishop of Canterbury or senior Anglicans saying anything like what we've seen from Pope Francis in the last 48 hours? Yes, of course, I wish it well. I'm very grateful for my for all my life as an Anglican, and I've received so much from it. And, but it's precisely because I'm so grateful that, that my, my heart began to break when I saw the church leaking the integrity that is essential to Christianity. Uh, there are a number of reasons, of course. I mean, one is the fact that Christians in Europe have, had a, have a, ex endured a, an enormous uh, secular and atheist onslaught on the faith uh, and haven't fought back with enough energy and imagination, but that's changing. And the other is that, unfortunately, um, the system of appointments, the system of the bureaucracy has mirrored what so many other systems have. We find cancel culture and neo-Marxism, well, it's everywhere. It's in the universities, it's in the police, it's in the hospitals, as you've just been hearing earlier on this evening. Uh, and it got into the church. And um, uh, I'm sorry that there are very few voices in the Church of England, some wonderful ones, but very few who are challenging it. It's so important that Pope Francis has picked this up, because there are, there are two critical ideas Christianity has. One is that the, in terms of choosing between power and love, love matters more. And in terms of the sacredness of the individual, instead of the collective identity, individuals are sacred. And these two ideas are completely opposed to the ones that gave birth to cancel culture. And that's one of the reasons why I think Catholic Christianity has the resources to challenge it and to see it off. I mean, part of the motive, I think, behind cancel culture and perhaps the removal of statues is there are many things in our past, in our history, that people today find extremely distasteful, uh, difficult to face up to. How do we deal with that? Well, their motivation is excellent. What they want is a more just society. Uh, essentially, what they're hoping for is to is to right wrongs of historical injustice. But it's it's a bit like a bad doctor getting hold of dangerous medicine. Just because you want to heal your patient doesn't mean that you're not going to kill them if you do it badly. And the problem with the secular utopianism that cancel culture represents is that although its motivation is, is, is very laudable, it's got the wrong diagnosis and the wrong prescription. So what it wants to do is to force people to adopt narratives uh, and to, to rechange history. And, and the, the trouble is you can't make people behave better by cancelling them or by forcing them. You actually have to love them better. And in the end, I think it's Christianity that has the greatest chance of doing that. So the motives are good. 
but their prescriptions are bad. And when it comes to the Church of England, the Anglican Church, the established, still the established church in this country, although at some point in time I suspect there is going to be a debate about that, what hope is there now? How does the Anglican Church turn this around? Because all I can see are people, committed Christians, and I, you know, I've, I've, I've had spoken to you before here at GB News. Equally, I had Bishop Michael Nazarali, the former Bishop of Rochester, uh, in this studio just a couple of months ago, and he's now joined the Catholic Church. Is there any hope for the Anglican Church? Nigel, for the whole of my life, when someone says it's a hope, I've tried to find some. and it's, I'm passionate about yeah. finding hope. And, and I'm really embarrassed because, the, I mean, the reason I became a Catholic was because I couldn't find any hope. I, I had been working very hard as an Anglican for decades to turn the system around. But actually, the people who believe in progressive values uh, had got control of the organization. And, and just as everywhere else, they weren't going to let go. So for me, there are Christians right across the spectrum of the denominations, lots of very good ones in other places, Pentecostals, Evangelicals, Baptists, working hard. But I decided that the most authentic hope lay in the Catholic Church. And that's one of the reasons why I, I gave up my past uh, and my love of Anglicanism and moved across. But it doesn't matter where you are. What we have to do is to find a, a, a way of thinking clearly and courageously and making sure that this, this terrible cultural uh, steamroller doesn't crush us, take away our freedom of speech, take away our freedom of employment and take away our humanity. And a quick thought on the evangelical movement, which from what I can see is also growing in this country and quite quickly in some places. Yes, it is. And I mean, that's that's the dilemma the Church of England faces. It got rid of its Catholic wing and its, and its evangelical wing. Um, it cancelled them effectively and made them go elsewhere. But uh, pa passionate evangelicals are doing very well. They're, they're growing. They're utterly enthusiastic about their witness, their love of the Bible, their love of Jesus and their love of faith. They, they do it in a whole kind of plethora of groups. It's a, it's a very individual way of being a Christian. The Catholic Church uh, is the same, but at the other end of the spectrum. It has a long history, of, a very yes. powerful sense of coherence. And so these two wings are the ones that are, I think, proving to be most successful at representing Christianity in this cultural struggle we face. Fascinating. Gavin Ashenden, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on GB News. And yep, strong words from the Pope. They really, really were. Now, in a moment, and this is really interesting because Quentin Wilson, you know, first really came to our attention being on top gear with Jeremy Clarkson. Yeah, he was a proper petrol head and he went on campaigning for reducing or at least not increasing fuel duty. But now he's gone green, really green. Yes, he's sort of with Boris Johnson and Carrie and he's an advocate strong advocate for electric vehicles and I'm really pretty sceptical so he's going to come and join me on Talking Pints and we're going to talk all things electric cars and actually have a proper debate about this rather than just being told they're the way to save our future. See you in a moment. GB News Pub is open. It's talking pints after my Serbian lapse. I'm back on the ginger beer. Now, our guest this evening, Quentin Wilson, is somebody who I described to you earlier as a bit of a petrol head, top gear, fifth gear host, transport campaigner. Uh, but here he is. Let's have a little look at him first. Back in 1997 with Jeremy Clarkson and Tiff Needle. 
Tiff, uh, you are in no position to lecture me on style dressed in a shirt like that. <laughs> and you are in your faded blue jeans with your Ray Wilkins haircut. Tiff, the Corvette will do 175 miles an hour. If I may interrupt, in a straight line, what happens, Tiff, if you get to a corner in a Corvette? You crash. Exactly. Look, it will do 60 in 4.9 seconds. That is just two tenths of a second slower than your Jaguar. I know, but two tenths matters, for heaven's it sake. It doesn't matter. It does. If you, if you live to be 70, that's 600,000 hours. That's all you've got. If every time you accelerate to 60, you're losing two tenths of a second, you're wasting your life. All right. Well, so welcome to Talking Pints. Thank you. Cheers, Nigel. Those early days of Top Gear, it must have been just the most enormous fun. It was, and if you imagine, that it was made in Pebble Mill in Birmingham, and yep. we were allowed to broadly do what we wanted. Um, and we dressed up in leather jackets and jeans, and, and I remember one of the senior motor industry people saying, you know, when Top Gear comes on, the entire industry reaches for the Valium. But we did. We changed things and, and we made cars more reliable. We educated consumers and it, it, it was fun and, 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 you know, it was entertaining. And Jeremy Clarkson has gone on to make quite a lot of money out of Top Gear. Yeah, yeah, with the Amazon Prime and everything and, and the, the Grand Tour. He's done very well indeed, yeah. Did but whether that's going to be as successful in farming remains to be seen. <laughs> did you miss the boat a bit there? Um, no, I don't think so. Look, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy doing what I'm doing. And, and, and you, you referenced the transport campaigning bit. Yes. And I, I saved um, over £100 billion in, in VAT and fuel duty and put that back into the economy. Now, that, for me, that's a great achievement. Well, this is, this is where we first met. Yeah. Completely. I mean, I was first elected as an MEP in the late 90s. You had the fair fuel campaign that was there, was up and running. And I think you said at the time, even then, that in terms of what we were paying to fill our cars up, we were the most overtaxed country pretty much in the world. Still are, Nigel. Still are. But your big battle was on... This was on the fuel escalator particularly, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, Darling's fuel escalator, where it went up by the rate of inflation every single year. So if we hadn't done that work, and, and I worked with Howard Cox and, yep. and, and, and Peter Carroll... Who's still there. Yeah, who's still there. And, and, comes, on the, and comes on this yeah, show, yep, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would have been 180 uh, a litre. £1.80. So yeah. we kept that down and, and a successive 10 years of, of freezes on fuel duty. And I think that's a great achievement because that money went back into the economy in those difficult years, 2010 to 2016, mm. when, when the economy was fragile. And the Treasury said that we increased um, uh, uh, GDP by 0.5% in an era of flat growth. And, 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 and what we'd done would be remembered... No, I was, I was an ardent supporter... I know. ..of that campaign. You were really, really, really you know, positive about No, it. no, I really was. But when you think about it, you know, around the Westminster village, there are so many little offices with campaigns, so many of them, and very few of them ever actually blooming work. Why did attacking the fuel escalator, why did this particular campaign succeed, looking back at it now? The Guardian, um, and who am I to disbelieve them, said it was the most successful political lobbying campaign in modern history. And that, that's a great accolade. And it succeeded, Nigel, simply because it was the money in people's pockets. We were saving them, spending sort of 60, 70, 80 pounds just to fill their car up. And it was a huge slice of disposable income. So mm. we touched a nerve. Um, and, 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 you know, Cameron, I remember, wrote me a, a letter. Blair didn't. Um, uh, but, you know, we, we had, you know, a lot of cross-party MPs, 80, 80 yeah. MPs supporting... And some of the press were helpful. Oh, the press were enormously helpful because it was, a, it was the right thing to do. What we never managed to crack 
was getting the, the oil cartels, uh, the oil traders and oil brokers, the commodity houses, just to, to reduce the price and not battle it up all the time. And we're seeing that now. I mean, petrol and diesel are the most expensive they've ever been in the mm. history of this country. And you can, you can reduce the, the, the duty and the VAT, but those rascals that keep battling up the price you know, they're threatening the energy security of this country. And that's... that's well, I would take a slightly different view on that. As a former commodity broker, I would, I suppose. <laughs> but the... <laughs> you know how it works. <laughs> well, I would argue this. Why the hell are we not producing our own natural gas? Why are we importing natural gas mm. from Norway, Qatar, a little but... bit from Russia? Well, it, we've got it here. Why is the investment in the Cambo oil field stopped completely? I know that the Labour Party now are talking about, you know, putting a new super tax on gas and oil companies. I mean, the point is, and we'll come to the green stuff in a minute, and I know you're a bit of a convert, but it does seem to me that until we have viable alternatives, we're conning ourselves in Britain by saying, oh, look, we've, we've reduced our carbon dioxide output because we simply import stuff. That's, but that's we have no energy elsewhere. security. None at all. No. And it's really a critical issue, both economically, socially, political. We've got to do something about this. Otherwise, we will be in thrall for years and years and years to Mr Putin with his natural gas and, 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 and all the other uh, countries that, that, that sell us the oil. And that's not good. So the petrol head, Quentin Wilson, who's there with Jeremy Clarkson, what was he like to work with, by the way? Look, he is, uh, you know, um, Britain's, or no, probably the world's best motoring broadcaster. And like all these really, really great people, he was a challenge to work with. Yep. Enormously funny. Um, but, it, you know, he, 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 he's larger than life. Um, but what he did and, and, and the mystique he created was absolutely incredible still. Mm. He was. But there you were. And as I say, you were a big petrol head, but suddenly there's been quite a big green conversion that's gone on. OK, so, yeah, I walked away from Fair Fuel after 11 years of, of, of unpaid um, work because I, I felt that, that the campaign didn't have any environmental sensibilities. Now, the, the key to this is um, I've been driving electric cars every day since 2009 when they first came out, when they were miserable, hateful little things that did 50 miles to one charge and 30 miles if you put the heater on. And my kids used to say to me, Daddy, don't take me to school in that electric car because people will laugh. And the mums on the school run would say to my, my wife, why does he drive that silly little electric car. But I did it because it was really important that as an opinion former, as a motoring journalist, I had to see whether this technology worked or not. So bought them, ran them, um, and, and, and over a decade and, and what, eight different electric cars covered 70,000 miles in them. For me, it was obvious that these cars worked and the technology was, was here and we can, we can utilise it. I drove uh, the GM EV1 in Los Angeles in 1996 and you can see it on top gear. This is the car that they crushed because it was so good and they didn't want to sell it because it would rival their combustion cars. And I had my Damascene moment then in Sunset Boulevard in L.A. saying to myself, whoa, this is the future. This is really smooth. This is fast. This is quick. With energy security, but if the lights go out because we haven't got enough electricity production, the whole thing would just stop, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, and, and we, we, this is a, a, a myth, I'm afraid, in the sense that everybody thinks the grid will fall over. It won't. We have enough electricity. Well, the French could close it down overnight. Yeah, well, then don't talk to me about the French. <laughs> um, Good. We do have all, all right. this offshore wind. We have all this hydro. Yeah, which is great, yeah. which is great, and, and, until the wind doesn't blow, and then it's useless. Yeah, but look, um, I've, every expert I speak to, and I'm interviewing uh, the, the, the head of renewables of the National Grid tomorrow, they say that we have enough power to be able to support 80% of the population driving electric cars. 
And look, who am I to, to, to well, argue against her? This is right. national grid. Let's, as it were, park that for the moment. To produce, I mean, basically an electric car is a great big battery with a carapace around it. I mean, that's basically what it is. Yeah. These batteries are big, they're heavy, they use a whole variety of rare earth minerals, uh, often mined under very, very unfriendly environmental circumstances. But did you know, let me just stop you there, Nigel, the cobalt, which is the thing everybody is worried about because yep. it's the DRC mines and, and child labour yep. and everything, cobalt has been used for years in refining petrol. It's in your smartphone, it's in your tablet, it's in your computer. Nobody has complained about it up till now because we have this kind of real anti-EV sentiment which is being funded by vested interests. No, I get that. I get that. I get that the, the, you know, the existing car industry, of course, don't want it. And the oil industry and but, the repair industry. But, but nobody, and maybe you can help me here, you know, how green is all of this? Okay. If, if these batteries cannot be recycled, and at the moment nobody's convinced me that we can recycle those batteries. So, OK, if you, if you just said that we've got these precious minerals, these, these critical minerals, mm -hmm. like lithium, like cobalt, like manganese, like nickel, nobody's going to be taking these batteries down to the tip anytime soon, Nigel. You know, they will be recycled. The thing is, they haven't failed yet. And that's another myth that... But no-one's found the way of recycling them. Well, no, there, there, there are. I mean, BMW are recycling them. There are plenty of places that do recycle them, but they haven't got the quantity of batteries coming in because... They're not, they're not failing. They're lasting much, much longer than people thought. So that industry, that nascent industry of recycling, that's definitely going to happen because that, those critical minerals were going to make more EV car batteries. And if the, if, the, if the recycling process is effective, I get it. I've had a lot of scepticism on this. So you really believe this is the future? Yeah, look, um, if, if we, we, we burn far too much stuff. Uh, you know, all this pollution, 28% of mm. pollution is from road transport. Mm. We can now, I can, I drive to, from the Midlands to London in an electric car and, and back on one charge, Nigel. That's nearly... The Midlands and back, And yeah. back, 250 miles. And if I need to charge, I can charge it on a lamppost off the Bayswater Road. So for me, we need to say, right, that's a viable technology that could replace fossil fuels. Now, what, what's wrong? But you, have to, but you have to produce electricity. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and in the production of electricity, because wind is so hopelessly unreliable, you are burning fossil fuels very often. Yeah, sometimes, but not always. And we need to just grow that, um, that, that renewable industry, which is happening, um, so I we know. can produce it. I know, which is why it's all going to go wrong. <laughs> God, that's what I think. But I, I, know, mean... I know, and you are the, the sceptic, and, and we will agree to disagree on this. But look, what is wrong with having clean air? with having energy security. No, 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 no. There's, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But, I mean, this government isn't aiming at energy security. In fact, far from it. It's happy to go on importing from all over the world, including 9% of our electricity that comes from France. No, no, I get it on energy security. But, you know, whatever form of energy it is, I totally get that. You may be right. You know, there may well be. And certainly the sales of electric cars were up last year, what, fourfold? Yeah, they're nuts. Absolutely. 28% of and the market. Can you explain to me something else? Second-hand cars... Second-hand petrol and diesel cars, from what I've read, rose by 28% in value in the last 18 months. Because of the superconductor crisis and the fact that you can't get new cars, there's a big delay because they yeah. didn't order enough semiconductors and the Chinese have not... And are these the ones them. all coming from Taiwan? Uh, they're coming from, uh, yeah, Asia, from, from, from China and from South Korea and, and, and Japan. So there's a premium on, on second-hand diesel and petrol cars only because you can't get them, not because they're more desirable than electric cars. I mean, the sales of diesels, I think they're, they're down like 55% this year. 
So um, the yeah. experts, by the way, told us to go for diesel. Do you remember? Completely. Hello. <laughs> and I remember saying, "What?" You know, and, and they, they were warned. I mean, I think we need to talk about That was the Blair government. It was, and it was Gordon Brown, the non-driving prime minister, who said, right, we're going to help the motorists and we're going to put the, the, lower the tax on, on, on low sulphur diesel. What do we all do? We went and bought diesels. 50% of us yeah, yeah, drove diesels. Yeah. So that's a policy mistake, yeah. and we're seeing the unintended consequences of that now with the air quality problems and the 40,000 premature deaths. Yeah, I guess, really, you know, a career as a journalist in, in cars, I mean, it's barely begun, really, has it? Because these debates and the government yeah, are now... The government are now coming out with all sorts of targets. But away from cars, away from this great passion... Um, so, would have I convinced you at all? Um, look, I, I, I... My big worry is, is energy supply. Okay. That, that is my too. big worry. My that too. is my big worry, and I think where we agree is we need to be self-sufficient in terms of energy, by whatever means that takes. Um, I've seen people with electric cars, I've travelled in electric cars... Um, yeah, I th they've certainly got a role to play. But do I think the government targets are realistic? Do I think that ordinary folk can afford these? I think these are very real problems. Yeah, and, and, and let's educate people for a moment here now. This, uh, this idea that they're, 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 they're really expensive. The upfront costs, yes, but if you look at the depreciation now of electric cars, they are actually holding their value far, far, far better yeah, but, than petrol but, but diesel. The initial purchase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but, and, and also, if they're, holding their, if they're holding their second-hand value, again, it's quite expensive to buy them on a second-hand basis Yeah, but the person well. who buys a new one will get most of their money back after three years. Yeah, I'm just thinking about ordinary folk struggling out and there. And so am I. And we need interest-free loans and stuff like that. We really need to... What, subsidy? Well, yeah, look, we need subsidies to do this. Oh, stuff. no, 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 no. We fall out there. But outside, outside, I had to find something, <laughs> didn't I? Outside of that, Anne Widdicombe was on a few months ago, who, of course, became more famous on Strictly Come Dancing than she'd ever been as this formidable politician and, and known by a bigger audience. But just share with the audience your phenomenal success on Strictly Come Dancing. Go on. Well, from what I can see, you've actually managed to get the lowest score ever on Strictly Come Dancing, 8 out of 40, and you were described by Craig Revel Horwood as Britain's worst dancer. And Bruno said it was like watching a reliant robin circling a Ferrari. <laughs> but look, I mean, it's one of my proudest moments, Nigel. I think <laughs> failure is the new success, and it is what civilises us. So when they rang up and they said, would you do it? I instantly said no, because I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm as agile as a JCB. Um, but my wife said no, because it will, it will show that you are you know, human and, 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 and that you, you, can, you can laugh at yourself. And I think it's really important. And for months afterwards, people would come up to me in the street and say, well done, mate. Well <laughs> done. And shake your hand. And I think, you know, it, it really is important that you show your real self and that you can fail. And, and, and that's good. It's, a, it's the right message. In this world of influencers who say we must all be world class and billionaires, mm. a bit of homegrown failure goes a long, long way. Well, I have to say, from Top Gear to Strictly Come Dancing, Quentin Wilson, thank you for joining us here. Always a pleasure. On Talking Pints. Very good. Right, we are coming towards the end of the show, but I've left a bit more time tonight for Barrage the Farage, because I know you send in so many of these questions. I sometimes feel I don't quite do them justice. As you know, I never see them before. Here goes. Thomas asks me, if you could time travel back to any period, 
Where and when would it be? My honest answer to this would get me in so much trouble. I think the station would be bombarded. There'd be an Ofcom problem. But I do remember being younger, speaking uh, to older folk uh, who had lived in between the wars out in India. Yes, it was part of the empire. I know, doesn't this sound absolutely ghastly? And you're going to be screaming at the television. But I would have thought that lifestyle uh, would have been pretty tremendous, if unfair and morally wrong. But, hey, you ask the question, that's the honest answer. One viewer asks, do you think the UK should protect Taiwan against China at any cost? Let's be realistic, and, and we just touched on Taiwan a moment ago when it came to the issue of semiconductors, and many of them, of course, do come from Taiwan. The Americans are spending billions to try and catch up. They will catch up, but not for many, many years. We, on our own, cannot defend Taiwan. This ultimately would come down to America. Uh, would Biden's America intervene? I don't think so. China becomes ever more bellicose. Uh, I think there's, I'm, I'm far more worried about what's going to happen in Taiwan than I am what's going to happen in the Ukraine. That's how I see things going on from here. Ryan asks me, when will the people stand up for smokers? Well, I've just come back from Serbia, where literally you can smoke anywhere. And there was an amazing sign on a table. It said, smoking aloud, Serbian Ministry of Health. I really couldn't quite believe that. And that was in a restaurant. Look, you know, smokers probably for too long offended non-smokers and anti-smokers by wanting to light up everywhere. The civilised answer, of course, for restaurants and pubs is to have a separate smoking area. Mr Blair decided a total ban. And I've got to tell you, I don't think there's any going back. Funny, isn't it? Smoking is dreadful, but drugs? Well, let it all hang out, it seems. Dave asks, if Boris is forced to resign, would you consider returning to politics? Look, if this was the USA and we had open primary elections... Then I could put my name forward and try and become Conservative leader. I might not succeed, but I could have a go. In this country, it can't be done. So if I have to try and have a go, another big go, it would have to be from the outside. I'll do one more. Bodhi asks, is Partygate 2.0 the final nail in Boris's coffin? Uh, he's heading in that direction very, very quickly. But the key, the absolute key to all of this will be the local elections on the first Thursday in May. OK, thank you very much, everybody. I will be back with you again tomorrow evening at the same time, 7 o'clock.